Fane House Radio is brought to you quite literally and completely by my little paint to print business, Fane House. It is a truly handmade project in that I am 100% creator of the show from scheduling to creating the graphics to spreading the word to writing the descriptions and editing the audio. It's a pretty big job and I sure do love it. And I want you to know that every single calendar, greeting card, or art print you purchase from Fane House is totally directly supporting the creation of this show. 2023 wall calendars are now in the house, as well as this year's holiday greeting card and G-Clay art prints of this year's brand new paintings. To see them for yourself, go to afanehouse.com. I hope you're having an awesome week and here's to the show. How can you do all that needs done in life and still pursue your desire to learn French or the guitar or grow a plant or make art? You can't put a fiddle under your pillow and wake up playing it, though how cool would that be? But one thing we can do, no matter how chaotic and overwhelming life can be, is know that every tiny small motion and the direction of those endeavors really do matter. And not only that, they add up over time with great momentum. Join me, Annie Fane Barillon, as I interview painters and gardeners, designers and musicians, photographers and cooks, creative livers of any kind, who have somehow, in the middle of it all, continued on their creative paths, no matter what. This is Fane House Radio, and I'm so glad you're here. My name is Hannah Singh. I'm a painter and musician. I studied painting in college, but I've been an artist all my life. I have a very artistic and musical family, and I've also been playing music most of my life, but I picked up traditional fiddling as a teenager and got swept up in the traditional music world, playing for contra dances and square dances and Asian dances. So when you say traditional, what Mm -hmm. would be the list of words you would use to describe your version of traditional? Yeah, traditional Appalachian music mostly. And then traditional Celtic music, which is actually where I started. I took a workshop and some Kate Breton fiddling at the Sonanoa Gathering. Then I got into Irish fiddle playing. And then when I started playing for contra dances, I learned about clawhammer banjo and started just playing a lot of old time, Appalachian old time music. Not so much bluegrass or country, just mostly old time. Old time being pre-bluegrass and pre-country. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. You just mentioned the Sonanoa Gathering. Tell us about that. I wasn't familiar with the Swanoa Gathering until I was 16. I was going to the Lake Eden Arts Festival and contra dancing there a lot and was familiar with some of the musicians that were playing there, but I was really, I was wanting to pursue making art. And I had applied to the governor's school at Winston-Salem at the School of the Arts. And I didn't get in and I was pretty mopey about it. Ho-hum, you know, woe is me. And my mom said, well, you know, these two musicians that have been at Leaf also teach at this thing called the Swan and Gathering. Maybe you should go. And so I signed up just kind of out of wanting something to do that summer. I was already playing violin in my high school strings or orchestra, but I, I wasn't familiar with fiddle music at all. So I just signed up for the first classes that caught my attention, which were Kate Brennan fiddling and Irish fiddling, and fell madly, madly in love with it. Was immersed in this community of musicians and dancers who were of all ages from all over the country and even other parts of the world because they were from, you know, the Celtic Isles as well, Canada. And yeah, just discovered this thriving scene that just spoke to my heart, you know, as a musician, but also just as a person. 
and it was just did this 180 on my life. And I went back the next year for Irish fiddling again and Cape Breton fiddling. My teacher was Jerry Holland, who passed away several years ago. He was a great teacher, just really laid back and so funny. And I just kind of clung on to him the whole week, you know, to eat my meals with him. And then I would get comfortable and just, I would just sit down with whoever I wanted to sit down with. I would just find somebody like, all right, let's start talking. And I just met the most amazing people there. So when I went back to high school to finish my senior year, I was just like, high school, this, what's this lame? I'm just going to like finish high school and then stay in Asheville. I don't even care what I do in college. I will just apply to UNCA. I just want to stay here for the music. <laughs> Would you add a love of travel on your list of creative endeavors? <laughs> yes, absolutely. I actually haven't done all that much traveling, but the traveling that I have done has been pretty profound. In 2013, I took myself to Ireland. It was my first time traveling solo, first time traveling abroad. Didn't know anybody where I was going. To get myself there, I did sort of a Kickstarter thing. I raised funds, but I just did it myself. I didn't do it through any website. And I offered people paintings in exchange for whatever they donated for when I got back. So I was familiar with this organization. Now I can't remember what it was called. I think it was World Exchange. And there's a lot of like hostel jobs or farm jobs where you do some work in exchange for a place to stay. But I found this house in Dingle, which was around the area of where I wanted to go, southwestern Ireland. And this woman was looking for painting lessons in exchange for room and board in her hostel. I was like, yes, I signed. I jumped up on that, got to go to Ireland and taught this woman painting and, and her niece and a friend of theirs. And it was just so much fun. And we would just drive around looking at places. She was the greatest host and got to soak up some music there. I was playing a lot of old time, but I was still listening to a lot of Irish music. And I was really into this fiddle player, still am, Quivino Ryla, who is part of this group called This Is How We Fly. And they were doing their album release that like fall of 2013. So I was like, I'll just plan my trip around their tour because I would love to go see them live. So I got to go to Dublin and see their album release. And there, you know, their big album release concert, I was like, I'll get there early so I can get the best seat. And I get there and there's one other guy there and he's in the seat that I would have picked out, you know, it's like right in the middle of the room. And so I was like, all right, I'll just go sit next to him. I'm not going to be shy. This is a place to <laughs> make friends anyway. And we started talking and he said, do you like to sing? And I said, yeah, actually I do. And at that time I was actually pretty shy about telling people that I like to sing. I love to sing with all my heart, but I was just feeling a little bit shy. But I was just like, I'm in Ireland just for a couple of nights. What does it matter? I'll tell this guy I like to sing. He said, oh, great. You should come out to this singing festival that's going on. And it was the Frank Hart Singing Festival. And Frank Hart was this Irish singer. It was just this weekend long event of concerts and workshops and lectures. And there was this singing tour. People, they were like guiding people around different places in Dublin and singing a song to commemorate an event that had happened a hundred years ago. You know, we struck it up, became friends instantly. I joined him on the singing tour and we've been friends ever since. We've been corresponding and I went back the next year and we sang together and did a recording together. Yeah, it was a huge experience for me. <laughs> Oh my gosh. And just think if you had just never left your house. <laughs> I know. I'm sure I'd have come up with something, but <laughs> I'm so glad I did that. Yeah. Cause it's, it's mildly terrifying Yeah, um, to just go out on a limb and just see, go see what you can see. Mm -hmm. I did the same going to France and came home with a husband. <laughs> Somebody told me that when I was planning my trip, they were like, you know, Annie Fane went to France and came back with a husband. I was like, don't tell me that. And what's funny is I was determined for that not to happen. Yeah, that is not why said. I was going. It has nothing to do with why I made that trip. It was a nice accidental benefit. But yeah, yeah it's almost like beware when you leave your house, you know, yes. like, and your life will change. Your life somehow. will change. And mm -hmm. 
hopefully mostly good. And I remember getting off the airplane and I felt sick to my stomach. Like I'm, I'm here and oh my gosh, why am I doing this? I had worked for so long to build up my little, you know, self-employed business. And I kind of shut things down for six months to do it. And I had a similar experience of getting passed between like musicians and dancers. And in exchange, I would teach bookmaking or banjo lesson or clogging or something. And they were super curious. And I was curious about what they were doing. And I love hearing stories about you're not sure how you're going to pull it off. And then Mm -hmm. somehow you kind of do. And then the people that you meet, which I think most of the time are great people Mm -hmm. kind of lead you into something else you wouldn't have done. And you can't plan at all. You have to kind of (laughs) see, but like part of the seeing is being a little bit afraid too. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh yeah. And that's the same in the creative process too. I mean, I guess that is part of the creative process is you're just afraid of what could happen, (laughs) what can come out of you and, and what can go into you? What can you learn from it? Yeah definitely it's scary, daunting. How am I going to afford this? And, and, you know, by the time I came home, I was like, screw it. I'm moving to Ireland, but I didn't (laughs) haven't yet. (laughs) At what point in your life would you say art and music arrived? I know you've answered that a little bit already. Mm. My family is full of artists and musicians. My grandmother on my dad's side, she was a full-time painter, Eleanor Sang, and she was in Chapel Hill. She was always painting She would send us birthday cards that she had painted like acrylics on paper of like a cat with a big toothy grin, like a Cheshire grin. They were just hysterical or just a cheeseburger, like this big, juicy, fluffy cheeseburger. And then my dad always had a studio. He held various part-time and full-time gigs. He ended up being an art therapist full-time. That's what he retired from, but he always had a painting studio or pottery or sculpture. And then my mom has also always had some kind of job to just pay for everything but she's always played piano and sung songs and actually when my parents split up there was a lot of driving back and forth you know they always lived within about an hour radius of each other so there was never like one was never too far away so there was a lot of car time though going to visit one parent or the other and that was a lot of time to listen to music and so that's kind of where I learned how to sing with my mom and I would sing along to Joni Mitchell and the Indigo Girls and Van Morrison and the Beatles Oh my God, the Beatles, (laughs) so many Beatles songs. And both of my brothers are musical. One plays classical piano and he's been playing since he was four. I think he, I'm I'm sure I'm misremembering this story, but I like to tell it this way anyway, uh, that he hurts, heard or saw a pipe organ and said that he wanted to play that, but it was too big to fit in the house. So they got a piano instead. (laughs) And then my other brother played drums first and then moved on to electric guitar. They both write pieces. They're both you know, composers, they don't perform as much now. Yeah. There's just, uh, there's just always been art in the family. You were swimming in it. (laughs) One thing I think about, it comes up a lot when I teach people will say, I'm not creative, or I didn't grow up in a family like that. And we know that it's not a requirement to grow up that way. It's like such an awesome thing. Some people grow up in it and don't (laughs) want to do it, you know? Uh And so Uh like, there was still something in you that made a choice. What do you say to people who might have that feeling like I didn't have any of those things. How in the world could I be an artist? That kind of thing. (laughs) You know, I think people are innately creative in everything that we do. It's it's part of human nature. It's what sets us apart. I have have this idea of like, we're all connected to nature. We're not separate from nature, but that is what makes us who we are is being creative. And we're, we're 
naturally storytellers, we want to connect with each other. And so we're creative in just a multitude of ways. And so it's like, don't knock it till you try it. I had this fiddle teacher who gave this story about how people would always come to her and say, your fiddle playing's amazing. You're just so profound, such a great you know, skill and talent. You're so talented. That's a big one. I tried piano, but I'm just not cut out for music. <laughs> She said, well, okay, but the piano is just the piano. You didn't try out the trumpet or the drums or singing or dancing. You know, there's so many different types of music. And I think creativity, playing music or making art, our bodies respond to the physical aspect of whatever we're working with. There's just this physical reaction when I'm playing my fiddle or my banjo. All my nerves relax. My brain clears. I'm just in my happy place to throw out a cliche statement, whatever. Same thing with painting. I got halfway through a ceramics major before I switched to painting. I was in ceramics because there were a bunch of cute boys in ceramics, but my heart was in painting. <laughs> so I dropped out of college, played a bunch of music, got back to college, finished up with painting. There are just so many different ways to be creative and you don't have to be surrounded by it. You don't have to have it burning in you. You don't have to stick with one medium or another. You don't have to spend all the money on all the supplies, although it's nice to, because it's just good to have good tools, you know. <laughs> that's, that is another thing. You can be a fiddle player, but have a really crappy fiddle. And that's the most discouraging sound because <laughs> it is one of the least forgiving instruments. <laughs> you know, it sounds like a dying cat when you're learning how to play it. <laughs> yeah. I love how you described the Birkenstocks. <laughs> Yeah, I don't buy a pair of Birkenstocks and go hiking and say I'm not cut out for hiking. You have to keep trying, even with the right pair of hiking shoes. <laughs> you know, you have to go through three or four pairs to realize, like, I'm not a Keens girl. I'm an ultra girl. I just bought a new pair of ultras because I realized that's what was good on my feet. I love that way of thinking about it because it lays it out in a practical formula. Other parts of our lives, we don't expect this perfection in the first round. Like you're saying, you might need to try a couple different hiking shoes for it to work for you. And so we could take that and apply it to everything else. <laughs> everything, Yeah. We put so much pressure on ourselves to be successful at everything that we do. First of all, everything. And if we aren't successful at it, first of all, what is successful anyway? Is it paying the bills? Is it looking really good? You know, like the artwork looks really good or the music sounds perfect. Well, you know, no one's going to be successful on the first try. And that's, what's really hard. It takes a lot of humility and patience and resilience to get through the shitty first draft, you know? Uh, and that's, that's a Brene Brown reference there. She has something about the shitty first draft about just get through the rough part. And then that kind of opens the gate for you to just, well, I want to I try that again. Like I, now I know what I need to do to make it better. I really love that idea. It feels exciting <laughs> because mm -hmm. it's sort of like great, the first part's totally supposed to suck. So here I am. I, it yeah. sucks. <laughs> and exactly. then like, oh, I'm in it. I'm in it. I'm in it. And like, you're just going to get through to the other side of it. And you're just getting closer every minute to where you're kind of wanting to be. And it might take years. I mean, fiddle, for example, I've been working on the fiddle my whole life, usually not in public, but it's a <laughs> lifelong process. It's a lifelong totally. process. It's never over. <laughs> and honestly, if I, I could do it in five minutes, I, I don't want to. Well, I mean, certain things, I guess, but if it came out just perfect, how I have it in my head, first of all, the first time, that's not what it's about. It's about the journey. It's about the process. Part of my process, you know, my, I paint a lot of nature. I paint a lot of birds. I paint a lot of landscapes. 
if you go through my sketchbook, it's a lot of different stuff. It's like faces and just getting ideas out of my system. But everything I think is connected. And the main continual theme in my artwork is repetition. And that's all it takes is repeating the same movement over and over and over again. When I'm doing a painting, I'm repeating the same brushstrokes. When I'm doing a drawing, it's the same, you know, little scratching at the paper with a pen. I was just flipping, I have to pull this up because it's sitting here on my desk and I just pulled this up last night. And I found this book on a bookshelf last night at a cafe that we were getting supper at. And it's, I'll just hold up the cover, but I'll read the title too. It's Quadrivium, The Four Classical Liberal Arts of Number, Geometry, Music, and Cosmology. Like, Ooh, that's funny. That's uh, f- fancy sounding and it's also very shimmery. <laughs> so I opened up this page here. I don't know if you can see the images there, but they're like just these little patterns kind of like zebra stripes and splotches. Lee symmetries uh, formed in time. Lee symmetries are so familiar to us that we almost don't notice them. They surround us and pervade the natural world. But it was only in the 1950s that these enigmatic forms of symmetry began to be understood as self-organizing systems through the pioneering work of Alan Turing. The Chinese, however, have been studying them for millennia, and it is from them that they get their name. Lee symmetries may be distinguished from static symmetries in that they are primarily caused by the interaction blah, 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 blah. For instance, they are <laughs> the repeated action of wind over sand produces the familiar ribbing of sand dunes, a symmetry which can only occur at different scales. So I read that last night. I was like, wow, I've just been thinking about how like it's just all about these repeated gestures and eventually they get perfect, whatever perfect is. They, they get to where they need to be. And that's through music too. You repeat, you're not going to sound good playing a tune you just heard on the radio the first time you try to sit down. You've got to figure out what key it's in. You've got to figure out what tempo it's in. You've got to figure out where your fingers fit on the instrument. I'm playing an air banjo right now. It's all about repetition. And so we are faced with a white canvas and thinking, oh God, this has to look good. But just buy a few more canvases and then it's a little bit less scary because if it doesn't work out on this canvas, it'll work out on this canvas. And in fact, go ahead and work on multiple paintings at a time so you can keep the idea going and take the pressure off of that one precious canvas. And then you have several canvases that are working on the same idea and the skill develops and the ideas develop. And it's just that repetition that then kind of takes the edge off. It does take the edge off because then you realize, okay, well, body training is half of what's happening. So totally. on an instrument on, with your paintbrush, you know, uh, dance, whatever, it's all this body training. That's that, mm-hmm. that's your repetition. And then once again, it brings it down to kind of this like practical place, which makes it approachable if you're feeling scared to approach. Yes. And it then becomes muscle memory. Whenever I do have like a little bit of a, I say a little bit of a block, I get blocks all the time. Whenever I have a block, I think, okay, just go for a walk, quote unquote, by sketching in the sketchbook, just start moving the body because it's a physical experience. It's not just in your head. It is, I I feel like there's an alchemical reaction between the artist and the material or the instrument. When the artist and the, whatever the medium is, merge they make gold but you gotta make some sparks first i love that (laughs) how would you describe your sense of place and its impact on your paintings and your music Mm -hmm. so sense of place is you know the appalachian mountains are just such an enchanting place 
I think learning traditional music really grounded my sense of place, learning the music and then the history of the people who created this music, you know, so it's a very culturally rich music, just deepened my love and understanding of this place. The, the sound just innately makes people think of Appalachia. When you hear a fiddle play a certain kind of pairing of notes on a double stop, people say, oh, mountain music. So when I'm playing tunes, I'm, I'm expressing this place, you know, or, or just connecting to this place. Part of myself goes into those tunes, but I'm not, well, what am I trying to say? I'm not, I'm not changing the music. People still know that it's Appalachian or Celtic even, or Cajun. I love playing Cajun music and they, they just, the musicality takes you to those places on its own. And then I get to come in and express myself through that music. Same thing with art, you know, with, with landscape painting, it's just obviously there's the place, there's Appalachia, there are the mountains. With my bird paintings, it's probably not quite as obvious, but I'm painting birds that are, that I see here because that's what I know. I had a writing professor, you know, I took creative writing in college and the writing professor said, write what you know. And I translated that later to paint what you know, and I just know these birds. So I'm connecting to the place through these bird paintings and connecting to the place with my artwork and my music is how I can just really just hold this place in my heart. I just love this place so much. And then my art and my music is I get to share that with people and just say, look at this amazing place. We're not just a bunch of dumb hicks. Like the stereotypes might still be out there floating around. I don't know if they are anymore. Surely we're getting smarter than that to believe stereotypes, but I'm just wanting to share this place with people. It's really nice watching your face talk about it because you're, you know you're like <laughs> my, my you're hands like crumbling your whole microphone over <laughs> like I love this place. <laughs> I share that love. <laughs> I will admit it myself. <laughs> and you know, of course, every place we go has beautiful, wonderful things. You know, or or designed to find, even if it's cement. You know, like there's so yeah. many great things to find. And some people's artwork or music does reflect their place. And sometimes it doesn't. It's just their inner landscape. Yeah. But I do see and hear where you live radiating out in your work, the creative work that you do. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's nice to hear about it. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is I started painting these birds just, I guess, around 2016 or 17. I really started diving into the bird paintings. And for anybody who's listening that hasn't looked at my bird paintings yet, they're very colorful. People have compared them to stained glass windows full of patterns made by the branches and the leaves and the birds kind of dispersed throughout. Some of the birds are more obviously placed visually than others. Some are kind of hidden in the shadows or whatever. I started paying attention to the birds. I started seeing birds more and started hearing them more. Just when I go outside, you know, I garden a lot. I like to spend as much time outside as I can just throughout the day. And when I moved to Saluda, I started seeing birds that I'd never seen before. So my interest in the painting didn't necessarily start off with an interest of birds. It was just kind of like, I feel like painting a bird. That was fun. Let's do another one. Suddenly now I'm really fascinated with birds. And then the biodiversity that comes with like learning what bugs they eat. Well, what trees support those bugs? Well, maybe I should include those trees in my painting because most of my foliage in my paintings are imagined just because I like the, the patterns of a certain leaf shape. But now I'm thinking, well, maybe I should start using a white oak because that supports like the biggest, you know, group of caterpillars out of all these trees, you know, and that's what all the birds like to eat. And thus I can inform people, well, you know, please don't pull up your oak trees and replace them with ginkgos. That's not a good idea. 
we got to protect this place or take care of it. It's, you know, mother nature is fine. She's going to do what she does, but we're, we're kind of messing it up for ourselves. <laughs> yeah. I had <laughs> to a take friend, care of it. A friend recently talking, um, who is a beekeeper and in love with bees and how, when you go to the store and buy a non-native plant and plant it, the bees do not pollinate or want to be part of those plants. And so mm-hmm. you're affecting bees, which affect everything. And so there's so much in all that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a huge ripple. It's a huge ripple. My husband and I are very adamant now about planting natives, just trying to do the best that we can with what we've got. Speaking of outside, do you often go outside to sketch your ideas? Do you mostly work from photos? Also, I'm curious when and if you are going outside to sketch what your favorite outdoor sketching painting gear is. I wish I went outside more. I think it's so important just for our minds and our bodies to be outside as much as we can or connect to nature as we can. In fact, there's a lot of research behind that that says we, we, we need to be outside more. But I take a lot of photographs. I work from a lot of photographs either that I've taken or that I find on the internet or books. I just, the birds move pretty fast. <laughs> so I don't yeah, sit and draw good them. Good point. That's a yeah. good point. They're like flittering by, like that's very yeah. hard to catch that, capture it. Yeah. And you know, it's an important skill to be able to find beauty wherever you see. So when I'm drawing landscapes or plants, I try to sit outside and draw them and just work from my yard. Cause it's just right there or go out to a trail. If I can, I just got back from Banner Elk with my mom. We did a little drawing trip, drew some trees up there. And then we went to, and Banner Elk was a little mill pond and we, we sat and drew the water. And there's just something very magical about sitting and being in the place that you're putting onto a piece of paper. I love to use the Tombow dual tip brush pens. Those are so much fun. You just get a lot of rich color out of them, but you can still layer them and they have a translucence that's nice to work with. And then I'm very excited. I just ordered myself a nice set of colored pencils. I've been using Crayolas <laughs> for years and I'm finally decided it's time to move on to a nicer set. So I, I went to Cheap Joe's. I, I love that art store in Asheville. It's in Boone and Charlotte as well. That has some different colored pencils for me to try. I ordered a set of the, I don't know how you pronounce it. I'm going to butcher it. The Faber-Castell, Faber-Castell pencils. Extra creamy oh, kind. So buttery. My goodness. They're just, I mean, again, there's that physicality of the material. There's just a real joy in drawing that pencil or dragging it across the paper. Yeah, charcoal. I love getting pastels and charcoal on my fingers. I love getting messy. I almost don't care what the image looks like. I just like getting it all over my hands. I do watercolors sometimes. I actually used to paint in watercolors a lot when I was in high school and college. I painted and I would do like a pencil drawing and then pen and I would fill it in with watercolors and I feel like I got really good at them. And then I would hear people say like, oh, watercolors are so hard. You know, I didn't have anybody teach me how to use them. I was like, just use them. (laughs) Just figure it out. You know, they are hard. They actually are pretty hard to manipulate, but so that's, that's what I work with usually. And I'm using a spiral bound notebook with some pretty heavy paper, some 90 pound paper, a Strathmore visual journal. It's just a nice hard cover, but spiral bound, just nice thick paper. And I just love, it takes all kinds of media. And then I've discovered these lovely little journals. They're just really pretty to look at. They're cloth bound, hard bound, or global art hand. And they're just these really pretty little mixed media journals. And there's just something about having the right materials to work with. 
just like having the right instrument to work with or the right pair of shoes to hike in. <laughs> it, it makes a big difference on what I want to create. And like you're saying, it's a more pleasurable experience. It's like setting yourself up for success instead of mm -hmm. just trying to do everything on the cheap, you know, and it mm -hmm. just causes so much frustration. It impacts the final outcome. It could cause you to stop your instrument because it's so frustrating and it's really not your fault because the action's too high or it needs new strings or whatever, or absolutely. whatever. Absolutely. You're fighting the instrument to be able to get a good sound out of it. And it's physically painful. I've played on a bad fiddle before and it yeah. hurts and it's very discouraging. And I can see why people try the fiddle and say, I'm not cut out for the fiddle. You have to get a good fiddle, but a banjo, you're fine. <laughs> Any banjo <laughs> will do. <laughs> I recommend getting a mulher and banjo though. <laughs> Wait, say that again. Say it again. <laughs> I highly recommend a mulher and banjo. <laughs> Oh my gosh. So for those of you who don't know, <laughs> the reason we're laughing is that is my little brother's banjo company. He's a banjo maker, Mulher and Banjos. <laughs> Check them out. Check them out. They're so cool. They're beautiful. Yeah. They're stunning instruments. Yeah. Well, it's a good example of some of what we're talking about because he has this artsy painty, painterly side that most people haven't really seen. And then he has this woodworking instrument side and he's combining them by distressing the hardware and he paints on the backside of the head of the banjo so it's like all these bright colors shining through it's not your average kind of banjo at all it's like no. a painter a painter's banjo go check they them are, out <laughs> they are eye candy they're so so beautiful to look at yeah what are your thoughts about how you decide to layer and add you could apply this to your whole life, but I'm talking about like <laughs> your landscapes, your foliage, you have a nice, and I've seen this like traveling in Italy, they would paint red behind mm. things to have a glow or it's like the opposite colors than you would think as a back layer and paint on top. And I love thinking about that. And I do it with watercolors all the time, even though technically that's not a thing to do that way. Like I'm not trained in watercolor. So I do kind of what I want and experiment constantly. But a lot of times with watercolor, you're kind of you might have like a little bit of overlapping, but you have like this quicker thing going on. You might have a layer. It's not known for layering. And I want, sure. I layer all the time Yeah. And with like oils and acrylics, you can layer, but you're also experimenting with, well, that's more opaque than I wanted, or this is, I want it less opaque. And then how do you have this like radiating glow? It was one of your Lourish mountain landscape mm. paintings. Actually some red is underneath all the blue. Um, the foliage for your birds is like a pretty big deal. The first thing you see is the bird. People think of the bird, the bird, the bird. And then if you stop and look at what else is going on <laughs> and you think about, <laughs> well, this would have to go before this could go. And then you're talking about how you paint in your negative spaces. And I love doing that too. And it is super meditative and it's like focusing on shapes and shapes instead of some grand fancy central image or something. And so that's a long question. To mm -hmm. ask. Yeah. Yeah. I've already got it broken down though into parts. All right. <laughs> In my mind. In college, I, there, there were just so many takeaways from college, from studying painting. You know, how, I, I just would tell anybody if you can find a painting instructor, take lessons because you just learn so much. I learned a lot about compositional theory and color theory. I'll start with the color theory part because that applies to all the paintings. I learned about you have your primary colors, red, yellow, and blue, and then have your secondary colors, orange, green, and purple. The secondary is created when you combine two primaries. So red and yellow make orange, red and blue make purple, blue and yellow make green, right? So there you got your primary and secondary colors. 
when you have a primary color, say your landscape is just a very blue toned landscape. If you put in the opposite of blue, it's complementary color, which is orange or any kind of that reddish orange family, it's gonna make that blue pop even more. And it's also gonna create a harmony to that painting. Whereas if it's just all blue, it's kind of drowning in blue. I, I was taught initially in oils and we were taught to put down a wash of kind of the opposite color of what we wanted our overall painting to be. If you wanted like a really rich, warm, get into your cool warms and your warm warms, but if you wanted a really warm toned painting, put in a blue wash or a cool wash in the, in the beginning and then map out your composition of where you want everything to be. So that's how I approach my landscapes. I want some nice blue and green mountains. I'm gonna put down a, a burnt sienna or a even like a, a cadmium red bright wash uh, just depending on how electric or muted I want it. Electric, it's not really a color word, but, you know, just saturated or muted I wanted it to be. And then just knowing how those opposites make each other pop out when I'm painting my highlights, you know, I'm, I'm painting some yellow sun. And, you know, it, colors are so tricky because we just learned from an early age that, you know, the tree trunk is brown and the sky is blue. And so painting is a lot of unlearning that. No, that tree trunk is actually like a really bluish silver color. And actually the sky is pink. <laughs> I just, I love that. And I, I look for painters who really push that. And with painting, you have your creative license of pushing. Well, I want that to be more pink. I want that to be more this or that or less this or that. Erin Hansen is actually a painter. She's out in California, I believe. She's a contemporary painter that I've been studying and she's just a master at color. She does those washes and you can really pick apart her. She only has like one or two layers of paint that she's using and you can see each layer pretty clearly. And I'm trying to do that, but I just physically love slathering that paint on there. And so my layers get deeper and deeper. <laughs> I just love putting on thick layers of paint. And it's something I'm constantly working on. I just want to know that I can hold back just for the sake of knowing I can hold back, not really for any other purpose. With my bird paintings, I'm applying that color theory, but when you look at my bird paintings, like you said, there's the branch that has the leaves with the birds on it. And then there might be in the distance, like behind that first layer is a layer of color and behind that layer is another layer of color. Actually, what I'm doing is I'll paint the wash and then I'll paint in the branches and the birds first, not the leaves, I'll draw them in. And I have videos all over my Instagram and website of me doing this like in, in a fast motion. But then I paint in um, this, the negative space. And the thing about negative space is I was taught never refer to it as the background because that implies that it's an afterthought, that it doesn't get the same amount of attention as the rest of the painting. When you want to have a whole painting that is harmonious and you don't want to focus on one area more than the other, paint it all at the same time. Don't focus all your attention on each individual bird and then paint everything around it. Paint all those negative spaces too, and then everything looks unified and cohesive. The very first painting I did of this bird in the branches thing, it was a gift for my mom, and I just started painting it in, in those negative spaces between the branches and the leaves, and that was, that was just the most fun part to me. First color that I chose didn't work out, so I ended up going back over, and this is oil, so I had to wait quite a while for them to dry. And when I went back, the colors blended a little bit, but it was just so much fun to go in between each little leaf and branch. And I just loved that, you know, forcing myself to slow down and really pay attention to what I was painting and did it fit the rest of the painting. I, when I moved to Saluda, my workspace does not accommodate 
a lot of wet oil paintings. So I had to switch to acrylics I, and I started selling in some galleries. You know, they'd ask for paintings and I'd be like, okay, I just finished this oil. Do you want me to bring it to you wet? So I switched to acrylics and had to start all over learning how to paint in acrylics. I hadn't touched them since I was in high school and I, no one had ever taught me how to use them, but I was equipped with the color theory to know what to do with them. And there are so many great other mediums, like, you know, you can use glazing liquid and all kinds of things and a slowing agent. I love slowing agents to make them thicken up like oils. They dry darker, which is really annoying. Then when they're put down, that's really hard to deal with. <laughs> that's been very frustrating. And they don't quite have the, I guess, just the luminosity that oils have, but there are just ways to work with it. Again, mediums and, and glazing, glossing them over. You can make them look like oils or just you know, be just as satisfying to work with. Because they were drying so quickly, I, I started layering more and more and just having more fun with layering the, that negative space. And then now they're just full of all these leafy, negative spacey patterns. They're not really about the birds at all. <laughs> they're about negative space, really. <laughs> the medium kind of guided some of your design choices and absolutely. abilities to do certain things. Yeah, absolutely. Oh yeah. And I had a switch brushes, you know, with oils, I was painting with bristly brushes and I kept using really bristly brushes with acrylics because I wanted to get those brush strokes. You know, I just love brush strokes. Acrylics, as they dry, they flatten out to whatever surface they're on. And so even when I'm painting with bristly brushes, they lose their, they disappear. And then I finally just switched to synthetic brushes, soft brushes that get rich, crisp detail. <laughs> Until nice. you get that big giant studio mm -hmm. one day. That's right. I know. I told my husband, happen. as soon as I get that studio, I'm switching back to oils. I'm just <laughs> waiting. <laughs> How do you juggle organizing yourself both as a musician and a painter and as a kind of multi-passionate, it's not just multi-passionate, you have work in both of those things. They are, they require such different brain power and, you know, they're so similar in many ways. When I know I have a gig coming up, I can't paint all, sometimes the week leading up to that gig because I have to get into my music mind. It's a lot of time management and task management, which I've just, you know, learned through doing over the years. And probably the biggest thing that's been helpful is just owning that I love both. <laughs> I've tried to keep them separate. I've tried to stop playing music so I could focus on art. It sucks. I've tried to stop making art so I could play on music and play more music. I get really grumpy. <laughs> so I've just learned to keep instruments hanging in my studio. And while I'm waiting for the paint to dry, I play my banjo and you know, sing songs. Sometimes I'll sing the same song over and over again for an hour because I just need that musical side of me just needs to get out and not have the pressure of performing. But, you know, I've, I've gone through stages of loving performing and hating performing. And so I'm not hating performing, but just not wanting to, <laughs> just not wanting to perform. I'm going to say I'll follow my heart, but what I mean is my body. I believe our bodies are very good gauges for how much we want to do things. When I think about doing something like say, do I want to play this gig at this festival? And my body is like, I don't know. I listen to that. And when I say, do I want to go play this gig at this festival over here? And my body's like, yeah. You know, my lungs fill up with air and my limbs just get all jello-y. <laughs> like, yes, I do. I listen to that. And that's been probably the biggest thing for learning how to juggle the two. You know, language is a powerful thing and how we talk to ourselves and just the act of saying juggling art and music has kind of this con connotation of like they're both a burden or not burden but just 
like a little too much to deal with kind of yeah, difficult and it definitely does feel like that sometimes but when I tell myself like no I this is just who I am and what do I what I do then there's kind of a release of that pressure to choose one over the other I guess it's like nope today I, I want to make art so I'm going to make art obviously I have to make responsible decisions like if I have an art show coming up I shouldn't spend the week writing songs just learning how to manage my time like that has been huge so the better question is, how do you organize yourself? Oh, <laughs> I love, I love organization. I don't take much stock in astrology, but I do. Sometimes I wonder I'm a Virgo and they're, they're known for being organized, but you know, I, I have a calendar and a planner and a notebook. And now I just got a marker board and I write everything down. I just tell myself multiple times a day, like I have this coming up. I got to be prepared for me personally. Like if I know I have a concert coming up, I make sure I have all the lyrics printed out and that I just practice a couple times a day. I'm learning not to book gigs and art events too closely together. So summertime is a big music season. So I'm not going to sign up for many art festivals unless I want to, unless my body's like, nope, I really want to <laughs> make some art. Let's not do any music gigs. Same, you know, with Christmas coming up or the holidays, that's a big art selling season. So I'm going to try not to book so many gigs simultaneously. That's the kind of thing I'm learning how to do. I love how you're talking about listening to your body and that saying no is a tool also. And it doesn't mean you're saying no to everything. You're just saying no, according to the flow of the year and all of that. I've had some similar things like that, where I'm practicing the songs with the new lyrics in the car driving, because there's not much other time left to figure it out. Yeah. And it is, it feels so different to be on a stage and smiling and talking on a microphone is so different than being in our studios. And also those are all overlapping. So you need to get, you know, this needs to get ordered for the supplies for this in time. You got to wait for two weeks and you have this much time to maybe learn these new tunes or whatever it is. And they're all overlapping. And I totally agree that the systems in place are part of what helps that work being organized, you know, mm -hmm. for example. And I always held some kind of part-time job. That's another thing I've, I feel like people need to hear me say is like, I've, I've never just lived off of music or art. I've always for 10 or 15 years held down some kind of part-time job. I've worked in the mall in two different stores. I was scooping ice cream for five years. I've worked in construction for my stepdad, you know, taking out the glass and the glazing from old windows and doing house painting. I've done a lot of dog sitting. <laughs> I've always done something to cover finances. And so the music was just, I wasn't relying on it for money. There is something about that that's very liberating when you can just do it to just do it. And it doesn't matter if it is good or bad or what, you know, it's just what you want to be doing. But I was always, always, always making art too. There's really three things at one time, you know, the job and then the music and the art. But the art was just kind of like just hanging out and just watching from the back, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm just back here. Now I moved to Saluda in 2015 and kind of quit playing with some certain bands that I was playing with and just kind of hit a reset button. You know, just everything just shifted. It was just like suddenly, okay, now here's the new chapter. I started working in a gallery part-time and started painting and painting and painting and painting. I was not taking on any more music gigs. And so I had all this time to paint outside of my job. Meanwhile, my job being in a gallery was teaching me about the business side of art, teaching me how to communicate with galleries, how not to communicate with galleries, how to manage my bookkeeping and do my own taxes. I checked out this amazing book from the library called Artwork. I can't remember who the authors are, 
but it's all about how to write your resume and how to write your cover letter and how to write your grant proposal. It just made it more accessible, less intimidating. It's like, oh wait, I actually really want to do that. <laughs> this is this is what I want to do. It's scary. It's scary thinking about pursuing art or music full time, especially when you're relying on another job to support yourself. For a couple of years, I was working at this gallery and started selling my work at a restaurant next door and then at a little festival and then at another gallery started getting busier and busier to the point that the part-time job was getting in the way of moving forward in my art business i was planning on telling my boss i'm going to work for one more year when the pandemic hit the gallery shut down temporarily i suddenly unfortunately at the expense of the pandemic had all this time to start painting and people were buying my painting because I think they were just sitting in their homes looking at their walls like, let's spruce this place up. <laughs> I just started painting and painting. And when she opened the gallery back up, she asked, do you want to come back to retail? And I just shook my head and said, no, I don't. So I've been painting full time since 2020. You know, leading up to that, I had Elizabeth Gilbert. She, I think it was in her book, Big Magic, or maybe an interview that she basically told people, don't quit your day job for your art. Don't make your art suffer through the burdens of trying to find your financial stability. I had that in my head, like, hey, I can't quit my job. I'm really glad I didn't listen to that voice <laughs> right now. I'm really glad. <laughs> That's interesting. You're talking about some advice. Like we're not sure we have some fear. We're looking for advice. That's a hard one. It's not always the right advice for you. There's no one advice, right? For a lot of people, there's a fire under their butt to produce in a different way, because that's truly where your, your milk is coming from, mm -hmm. you know, and your mm -hmm. vegetables or whatever groceries, mm -hmm. but it's a hard one. Like sometimes it's just not working. Sometimes the amount you can produce, you can't produce fast enough at a price point that would actually, if they sold make any sense. And so you yeah. have to do the numbers. You yeah. have to understand that. And also I think what people don't really realize, like if they hire a band or buy artwork in a gallery, that's part of what we're juggling is that all the time you're practicing for that gig, you're not paid for that. You're mm -hmm. just paid for the moment you're there on set and you spent so much time getting ready for that moment. So if it's a wedding, not gig, to mention the equipment. <laughs> yeah. And then if you are going to do an art show, you have to pre-buy and pre-make like so much work that you haven't been paid for yet and get it framed or whatever. That is so much money to even get it on the walls. And then the gallery's taking 40 or 50%. So there is so much, it's so hard to do what we're talking about. And so once again, that becomes its own creative endeavor. Well, how do you take all these things into account and then find your own solutions for how to somehow make this work and then look to other people that maybe are making it work and be like, okay, maybe this is possible. And you know, even though I would say that if you're only looking on Instagram, you're not quite getting an accurate image on the backside of what looks like is working is, is a lot of, <laughs> a lot of hard work days where you feel like crap days where you don't know what the heck's going on. You know, you, you hear tons of stories of people who've published this book and they're famous and have no money in the bank. I mean, you can't <laughs> take those, you know what I mean? Like there's just a lot to juggle in it, which is also why I enjoy these conversations so much. And that goes right into the next question I had for you, which is what's been your biggest struggle when it comes to staying on your creative path? Yeah. <laughs> when, when you're talking about how you have to put so much money into the supplies to make the art, it's like, <laughs> we think about work 
crazy people. We're just crazy to try to pursue this, especially when it's the only source of income. The biggest struggle is that financial stability and trusting the creative process to keep me above the surface of, you know, insecurity and doubt and the world falling out from under my feet. You know, while, while Instagram puts up this fantastic facade of how perfect things are, there's also some truth in it. There's a lot of good business models out there. Like I follow some painters who are pretty transparent with how they work. This one painter, she was talking about how she follows perfume companies to see how they take photos of their products and advertise them. And that's how she takes photos of her artwork. She like uses them as examples. So that was just one tiny little facet of the business things that Instagram has to offer or, or just tips and tricks. Because the income fluctuates so much throughout the year, you know, one month is really great money-wise and then the next month it's like, I have no idea what paycheck is coming in or how much it's going to be for if it's coming in at all. It's really hard. Am I going to be able to afford my groceries this month or my bills? And that's what throws me into, am I even cut out for this shit? You know, am I sure, what am I doing? I need to go back into my part-time job. I let me go see if she's hiring and just getting through that day each day is a new day, being patient with myself. You know, we have a lot of beliefs in our culture that we have to shed in order to persevere in this line of work. First of all, the belief that money is our value. You know, if my painting sells for this much, that's how much, that's how much I'm worth, you know, or my paintings are really cheap. Therefore I'm not worthy of whatever I'm supposed to be worthy of people's attention or love or, you know, support. We have to shed that belief. Yeah. I find it really hard to get motivated to work when I'm in a financial slump, when the bills or the, the paychecks are not as big as I was hoping they'd be, I stop working, which is kind of obviously counterproductive. But I'm like, I can't do it. I can't paint. I'm not excited about painting, which is a really lousy place to go to. So I take walks. I go on a hike. I let myself doodle in my sketchbook. If it takes a week, then it takes a week. And I know I have enough money to stash, like that's stashed away to get through this month. I just give myself permission to, again, listen to my body. I've started meditating a lot. That helps. There's a great app out there called Headspace. I really recommend it. I just try to make myself happy where I can. And then the paintings come pouring out of me. Perfect segue, because I was going to ask you next, what is filling your inspiration cup these days? Gosh, yeah, there's just so much. I mean, everything inspires me. I'm constantly... First of all, for my paintings, I'm, I'm always looking. I'm just like, I, I'm always whipping out my camera. I try to walk like an hour every day or every other day in the morning, but it's always usually longer because I'm stopping to photograph spider webs and, you know, just whatever I'm looking at. My husband and I garden a lot. We were able to expand our property in 2020. We had to have some locust trees come down and we had them milled and made raised beds out of them. That was really cool. So I love gardening. I'm not very good at it. <laughs> I grow a lot of weeds. I've become very passionate about growing native plants because that just, it just feels like I'm doing a great thing for the systems around me, but also they just feed my ideas for painting. I read a lot. There's a book about music and geometry and numbers. I'm excited to dig into that. But I've been reading a lot from this historian, Yuval Noah Harari, 
who wrote a book called Sapiens, and it's about human evolution. He's been one of my biggest inspirations lately. I listen to interviews with him and read articles that are about him. And he basically just taught me that nothing matters. <laughs> you know, it's this big wild universe that does not care about fate or the alignment of stars and might, you know, hit you with a big earthquake or comet or something any day now and doesn't really care what you have planned for 10 years from now. So you might as well live your life to the fullest and suffering where you can and find joy everywhere that you can and just just be that's been a big motivator for me you know I was thinking about music and how I play a lot of traditional music but I don't actually listen to a lot of traditional music especially when I'm working because like I said music inspires me to create this imagery and these stories I listen I listen to whatever snags me so it may or may not be traditional music but I, I listen to just a lot of different stuff and then I I love watching movies. I love a lot of fantasy movies. My husband and I have been on a kick of watching all the uh, Marvel superhero movies and in like order, you know, chronological order. <laughs> we just wrapped up with some Spider-Man movies. So I've been on a big Spider-Man kick lately. <laughs> I love that. It's like the Spider-Man creative palette cleanser. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Before I ask you your last question, I was just mm -hmm. going to ask you to tell people where they can see more of your work and where they might could hear your music and all that. I have a website, hannahsang.com and my name is H-A-N-N-A-H-S-E-N-G. I put pretty much everything up there, my paintings, my music, any updates about shows I have coming up whenever they do. And I do have a newsletter. I send it out kind of once a season and you can find all that on my website. I'm on Instagram a lot. So I post a lot of pictures and videos of my artwork and music there that's maybe not on my website. And I do have a CD that is available on Bandcamp, which is also linked to through my website. What last words of encouragement do you have for everybody out there trying the best they can to fold creativity into their daily lives? I feel like the biggest thing is to just recognize that you're creative no matter what you say. It's there everywhere from how you dress to how you cook your food to how you express yourself. I mean, we're always expressing ourselves somehow. It doesn't have to be this burning fire under your ass. It, it doesn't have to be anything. It's You're the only one who can determine what it is and what you do with it. If you want to pursue creativity further by developing your skill, take some classes, go to the John C. Campbell Folk School and sign up <laughs> for a class. You'll be surrounded by some excellent company that's just as shy as you are <laughs> or as excited as you are to pursue your thing or just find a book at the library, watch some YouTube videos, just find a way to hone your skill. And then if you want to make it a business, learn your strengths and your weaknesses. If you love making art, but you hate working on a computer, get yourself a web designer <laughs> and have a website and an email. And if you hate communicating with people, hire somebody to communicate for you. I mean, it's a full-time job just running a business, let alone making the art, but I think anybody could do it. I, it's fun. I love managing my business. I love doing my website and my bookkeeping and all my communications because it just helps me step away from the art and see this other side of it that I get to, you know, stick my hands in. Yeah. And also be in contact with some other people and people yeah. that are buying your work and that kind of thing. Cause when you're in your studio, it's just you and your studio. Yeah. Go to festivals, go to art shows, meet people, take your sketchbook to a cafe and you'll meet people. <laughs> What's that you're doing? <laughs> go to Ireland and sit go to Ireland. First at the show and sit right next to the only person at the show and just yeah. strike up a conversation. 
Who knows? You might marry him and bring him home. Beware. <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much to Hannah for joining us today. And thanks so much to you for listening. I'm Annie Fane Barillon, and I'll leave you with a quote for the day. There is something beautiful about a blank canvas, the nothingness of the beginning that is so simple and breathtakingly pure. It's the paint that changes its meaning and the hand that creates the story. Every piece begins the same, but in the end, they are all uniquely different. Piper Payne. <laughs>